Welcome, everyone, to episode 42 of Room of Requirement. I'm always impressed that you remember. I I look it up. (laughs) I am Kamala Shrao, one of your co-hosts, and with me, as always, is... Uh, Miracle Jones, and we are a podcast dedicated to reason and resilience in the time of Trump. Uh, Man, what does that even mean anymore? Um, We like to start every podcast by checking in on how we're doing, uh, just as a way of acknowledging that all analysis in some way or another is personal <laughs> maybe um so how are you man uh not bad you know uh it's uh, uh it's sort of spring i think with the spring though comes a couple of things including uh allergens oh, so yeah. i've been yeah, yeah, yeah i've been you're less enthusiastic yeah i've been a little ill like that quasi illness like i think i was wiped out on saturday yeah. today's not that great a day um so i've been in and out just because of the the amount of pollen in the air. So how does it affect you exactly? Like, well, I get kind of cold-like symptoms, so yeah. like I get kind of like a stuffy head or uh, a, like a runny nose, and I just kind of very low energy for days. So that's a little odd for me, I think. Can you sleep okay? Sort of, yeah. I mean, I sleep a lot. Yeah. I don't necessarily sleep super well, right. I think. Uh, so even though I got like eight or eight and a, more than eight <coughs> hours of sleep last night, I'm still not like... Uh, up to speed, yeah. Do you feel, like, restless? Like, your body's kind of, like, fighting something off at all times? Like, a weird, like, invader? No, no, no. It's definitely, like, under, like, a fog. I have a seasonal sickness, so, like, right around now, I'll be ill for about two weeks. Is it... Did you get it in in North Carolina, too? I didn't get it growing up. When I go back, I definitely did. definitely Yeah. So it's just something you've kind of acquired. Yeah, it's just, you know, aging. In some ways, it's a sign of health to get out. Sure, when your immune system starts attacking you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like it's a Star Trek episode. Yeah, right, right, right. Does it color your world in other ways? I'm sure it does. Uh, uh, In subtle ways, but I try to keep... uh, an even keel on this stuff. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it call. I just you know I'm not getting exercise or like you know all the like low energy stuff. So uh, that's unfun because I really like I like doing things. So that's a little frustrating. But I also know that or every year around this time. So uh, anything else going on? I uh, I don't know. Like what 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 have you been up to lately? Are you uh, to, to to stay sane? Just to to keep it together? To keep it together. I think uh, things have been. Pretty decent. I've been uh, trying to get a little bit more exercise. I've been trying to get, uh, uh, you know, spend more time with uh, friends, uh, certainly my wife, um, and, you know, just balancing everything out. That was a little challenging, but I think I've been pulling it off. I actually stopped doing Aikido, which was, um, it was sort of like a weird time commitment that I couldn't quite pull off. I hope to go back to it again, but uh, for right now, I'm just going to try to concentrate on, on running and, and weights and stuff like that, uh, try to get my exercise routine in a little bit more sort of a regular kind of form we were talking uh this weekend and you were saying you wanted to get back into reading yeah uh, that that i i wholeheartedly and fully support this yeah <laughs> so uh, both you and my wife read a lot and i always kind of have that jealousy like i just don't read uh very much it's just I, my schedule a day like i i'm not reading i'm on twitter that's not else so I have this whole plan that I was going to get into, it, and I've actually been pretty good. So since I said that, I've been reading every day. It's only a comic book, but I, I, I've been following a particular comic book, and I'll follow a particular comic book writer, uh, Brian K. Vaughn. So I'll just be reading his stuff, um, and I think that'll be my way of sort of... I've been disciplined about reading it. It's pretty easy stuff for me to read, um, and then I'll try to figure out how I can incorporate more and more reading. Um, as it going. I think the problem is that I'm trying to balance it out with reading, sort of reading like technical things. So yeah. like I have to read technical things, so like papers and like 
um, you know, uh, you know, uh, mathematical kind of treatments of things. So that's different than literature, and I think I'm, I'm more talking about literature. Engaging that part of your brain that tries to like see things from an imaginative point of view as opposed to an analytical or uh, a political one, really, where you're trying to empathize with the character for no other reason other than that they have a story to tell and right. to follow along on this myth uh, in a way that hits your you know deep unconscious and unlocks shit and uh, you know lets you breathe, lets your soul breathe a little bit. Right, so, and I think we'll get into this actually. The reason that I wanted to start reading was because I just got sick of Twitter yeah. and getting my news and I was like, I need to take a break. This is, I am certainly losing my ability to read other things. Yeah. And I think that it's bad. It's fun. I have a whole theory about how people who spend a lot of time on Twitter, especially people who are active in it, they suffer for it. It's an abusive medium, and it's unfortunate. It's also how I get my news, so I, trying to balance all of that out, I think, has been interesting. P there are people who, who write on Twitter and who are, are pretty good about engaging an audience, but then, you know, things get really uh, ugly very quickly, right? Because yeah. anyone can kind of pop in and say something bad, and, you know, people feel that they need to engage or ignore or whatever. Um, so it quickly becomes a chain of a, a very, very bad college debate. That's how I think about it. Yeah. Right. You have to have a very strong viewpoint. You have to be able to get it out quickly in some sort of form. Yeah, you know, and once upon a time, in this great age of literature and the literature major, walking around town was just like walking through puddles of vomit through like, you know, cockfights and people beating their wives. It wasn't a good time either. Right. But this idea of literature is this like you know, way to escape, to evade, to go to a place that, you know, previously right. was reserved for, like, religion, right? Like, Bible stories and just sure, like, myths yeah. that, you know, there's a place in us that craves this sort of, like, uh, hero, hero's journey coupled with, like, beautiful, you know, uh, speculation and, and just fake shit. Yeah. You know, get your fake shit out in, in literature. It's yeah. You can grapple with the the verities and horrors of the real world with your best self, you know. Uh, yeah. I don't know. That's. I, I think people should read more literature generally. I, I, and I'm trying to do so. Okay. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about politics? <laughs> yeah, let's go into politics. All right, so uh, I think the biggest piece of news, right, is the issues with Syria. Yes. So they're ongoing, and I'd love to hear your take on what's happening and what you think should be happening. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a real muddle, a mess, right? Mm -hmm. So something that wasn't talked about widely before all this happened was that there was a big summit meeting between Iran, Russia, and Turkey, uh, and Syria, really everybody else in the region, yeah. uh, about, except us, yeah. about what to do in, in, in Syria, right? And we were not privy to this conversation, and people were talking about it like this was dividing up Syria, right? And then as a result of this, after this summit meeting, Trump, you know, came out and said we were basically getting out of Syria, right? Like, yeah. deal is done, you know, like, uh, our limited mission to fight ISIS is, is basically over, which we can wage from Iraq anyway. We are ceding Syria to Russia and Iran and Assad, essentially, and leaving the Kurds to dangle mm -hmm. and uh, abiding by Turkey's you know goal of a firm border there and uh that's it the end and then what happened was of course this gas attack in england and in uh syria which caused uh france and 
England to put a lot of pressure on the United States to get involved again. Right. Our response was a limited missile strike after a week of warning yep. and 48 hours specifically a warning of specifically where we were going to strike, uh, which led to uh, many different claims on many different sides. Right. Israel saying nothing happened, essentially. Mm-hmm. Russia saying they shot down a bunch of missiles, so it was like a net plus for like Russia, right? Like yeah. the and America saying it was a perfect strike, uh, mission accomplished. Use often zero uh, civilian casualties, right? And Assad, you know, posting that he was just another day at the office, like back to work, right? Right. Like, uh, and so here we are. Like right. it feels like it's essentially a non-event, uh, and it feels almost as if it was structured to be like a non-event. The uh, uh, the the sanctions that were briefly bandied about by Nikki Haley, which I took to be is maybe this is going to be something where then yeah sanctions uh, against Russia sanctions against Russia were then uh, rescinded and walked back. Uh, well, walked back, and uh, we are uh, here. We are. It's anything you know. The Assad is firmly in power. Uh, it would be ludicrous to assume that his chemical weapons uh, producing and using facilities have in any way been endangered, since they're primarily he's primarily they're primarily from uh, North Korea, Iran, and Russia in the first place. Right. And these countries haven't been touched. Yeah. Uh, and uh, our allies in the region, I don't think their bloodlust has been sated. And I don't know what good this was in any way, except it probably cost a lot of money. And I'm very confused by the entire thing. So, uh, so should we have not fired missiles? That's a, 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 a hard question, right? What would have happened if we hadn't done anything, right? I'd right. probably be saying, like, well, you know, Trump is clearly in the bag for the Assad regime in a, in a way that is, like, upsetting and, like, damages American foreign policy, like, right. irreparably and, you know, uh, kind of uh, makes us look like fools and will for years. And, right. Uh, but I, and not only would I be saying that, but France the UK, Israel, and Saudi Arabia would be saying that, right? Right. So, I don't know if that was ever an option, right? Like, something was going to happen, right? Something. Right. I think it's interesting to see how Americans tend to tend to sort of promote different types of, uh, uh, of events around the world as being uh, in the class of, we have to do something. Not a lot. Like we don't want commitment. <laughs> right, 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 right. We have to do something. Yeah, and that's uh, it's interesting because we didn't, we haven't really opened up refugee policy, right? Yeah. So uh, the number of Syrians coming into the country is now in the low double digits, I think. Eleven last year. Yeah, and so this is so there are other things we could do that we, apparently we our politics are such that we don't really want that. Yeah. Um, Hell, we could pay other countries to take them if we don't want them, which we're not doing. Right. right. I mean, right. even if we, even if it's a huge national security risk for America, which is deranged, but stipulated, you believe that? Why couldn't we spend that hundred million that we just spent bombing an empty airfield on, you know, bribing Turkey to take a well, couple hundred thousand more immigrants? Right, or Turkey. I mean, Canada. Other, I mean, other countries. Right. Yeah. So it's I think to get to Turkey. That's why. Yeah. Right. I think uh, the missile strike, though, I think is. Uh, it's an interesting play because I think you sort of warn um, 
uh, Bashar Assad. I, it's not really clear why, and I, I want someone to walk me through the idea that why are they still using chemical weapons, mm -hmm. right? Like it obviously brings back um, international attention to them. What they really want to do is quietly take over lost territory, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, quietly meaning fighting with rebels who people don't care about, but they don't want to excite the international community in any way. So what's the advantage of chemical weapons? Well, I mean, nothing happened to them. And if you're in yeah. Syria getting killed by Assad right now, nothing happening to Assad at all is visible to you. And you see that every, you know, Assad can use chemical weapons with utter impunity. He did yeah. it last year. He'll do it again. You right. know? Uh, there is no line, and he, if if he can do this with impunity, what the hell else can he do? Right. Right. If you're getting killed, it's a by genocidal Assad, weapon. Yeah, is you, kind of it's the point. true. But if you're getting killed by Assad, it doesn't really matter how. If you know, if you're the person. Getting yeah, it. it's a genocidal weapon that uh, kills indiscriminately, right? Yeah. So children as well as. Um, so that you don't have to deal with the refugee problem. Yeah. Uh, it also allows you to clear out territory, right? Yeah. In a way, yeah. it's brutal and awful. You also provoke the West, right? Right. And you can test the level of commitment of the West right. in order to prove that there is a 0% level of commitment from the West. Next to zero. Next yeah. to zero. Yeah. yeah. So what would you have us do? I mean, <laughs> as long as Russia has a permanent you know, Security Council vote on the, you know, and veto power, yeah. they're never going to let the concerned nations of the world intervene in Syria in the same way that they did in Libya or even Kosovo, right? Yeah. Both China and Russia voted against the intervention in Rwanda and, you know, we're still, you know, uh, I'm sure there will be another set of documentaries in the next 10 years about how that was a tragedy, right? In 10 years, yeah. this will be a tragedy, right? Yeah. Right now, it's just, what the fuck can anybody do, right? Yeah. Same situation. You can you can unilaterally act, uh, in which case you draw the, the ire of the world in, in, the, in the way that we did in Iraq. So, right. Uh, pointing out once again that the UN Security Council not necessarily a voice of good. Not a voice of good, but it, all, all, the only thing there is like that is international law or unilateral. Yeah, yeah, or unilateral action. Yeah. In which case you draw the risk of you know condemnation, sanctions. You know that's why we're sanctioning Russia, right? Right. They unilaterally acted in the Crimea, and so we have the you know the right to sanction the shit out of them. Yeah. Uh, in a world where we had good information, where people were not kind of uh, as addicted to conspiracy theories, fake news, bad information, yeah. and each other's like bullshit, we would all be horrified by what's going on in Syria, right? Right. In every country, you know, I think people... In right. I, I want to kind of push back on that as well, because I think... What's interesting about the Syria moment is that there's sort of a bipartisan confusion about what to do. Yeah. Right? So it's not like the right is saying one thing and the left is saying another. And this is actually pretty interesting, right? Yeah. Because our politics and our political views have become so tribal and so political in the sense that we tend to hear, adhere to our, whatever we're identifying as our party's viewpoint, that it's... It was interesting to see how much misgiving was at the core of even the Republican stance, right? Yeah. So, uh, best embodied by Donald Trump, who seemed to be blowing with the wind each and every day, right? So <laughs> he's uh, indecisive, but that reflects, I think, in some ways, uh, uh, an indecisive 
international and also national scene, right? I don't think right. that it's hard. I don't think the Democrats or the left came up with a clear plan or actually what are an agreement within itself, right? Yeah. Same thing with the Republican Party. So there is actually bipartisan confusion about what to do. That's true, but we also, I mean, I, I agree with you, but without great, without the, the role of journalism, without good news, we are not paying the price for not acting like emotionally and, 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 and free. We are not like seeing what's happening. We're not witnessing. Right. We're not, we're not uh, involved, right? Sure. We would pay attention if we were the ones pulling the trigger up. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it is a horrible, horrible situation. Yeah. I don't want to downplay that, but I also think that it's, a situation that a country, the U.S., that is scarred by foreign interventionism, is reluctant to get involved. Right, right. and but I think this that's is, legitimate. But, but this is a case of foreign intervention. It's just not us. Russia has intervened in a right. civil war and, and to artificially prop somebody up that's committing genocide essentially against these yeah. people. So that's a huge. You know, will Russia pay a price for that? I mean, uh, is there, is there, uh, will this be remembered? Will this be, is this just, you know, the same as what we did in Iraq? What, what is this, you know, where are we going with this? And will we be able to tell the story of what is happening there right. accurately, right? Okay, so l let's play a, let's have a little thought experiment. So yeah. 2020, Nikki Haley becomes president and she's yeah. like, and I'm one of the 25 listeners to the podcast, <laughs> yeah. uh, I want to bring you in, and, and I want you to advise me to the serious situation. What would you have her do? Assuming that the situation in 2020 is exactly where it is right now. Uh, <coughs> you know, I, I mean, my my opinion would be extreme. I would be Bolton-esque in my condemnation of the UN and its uselessness. I think we should leave the perma the Security Council as long as uh, Russia continues to have a vote there because I, I don't understand why they have veto power uh, and why we're respecting this veto power if they're using it to protect dictators and you know there's not there's, he's not even like a socialist you know there's no ideological reason Russia would, should be protecting Assad except for having a saltwater seaport right which right. is an act of war to me that's we're we're now in a new situation where the allies who won world war ii are no longer in acting in good faith in order to create security we have one right well I, I, I want you to be clear on that because i mean we weren't that in 1948 no right? but so i mean the allies that alliance fell apart in absolutely absolutely but so. the soviet union was a large portion of the world's landmass, right? Sure. So that makes sense that this would be the place we would work out the Cold War. Right now, Russia is a, you know, regional power that is using its Security Council as its as a weapon against the West. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's... Okay, so let's say, so we walk away from Security Council, then what? Yeah, I mean, then we have to, then we have to create something else, something that has the, uh, something that has the bite of international law to it. Uh, that uh, isolates Russia if they can continue to act in the way they do and gives them a path into this, you know, negotiating body. It can okay, be so still internally within the So UN. you're putting forward diplomatic solutions. What about military ones? I don't know if... I think one follows from the other. I mean, without some higher stand... Right now, it's a joke. Like, there's no... We're, we're in a double bind, and we have been for 15 years about intervention, right? Like, right. there's no... We said, you know, we fucked ourselves over in Iraq, right? That's yeah. one of the reasons we're in this bind in the first place is because China or Russia can always call us a hypocrite about this kind of yeah. thing. But, you know, I, I don't... 
I, 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 I don't see how going forward, you America can cleanse itself of these sins without, uh, ad, you know, creating some standard for itself and for others where you can lose this veto power, where people can't act in concert that isn't, you know, in violation of the law. I get it. I mean, and I think Nikki Haley would understand my frustrations having been in this position, negotiating with Russia, bad faith, in bad faith at, at the Security Council. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's that's all I can see. And then, you know, then we start to act according to some sort of moral principles, right? We return to, if we've ever had it before, you know, some sort of, if people are breaking these set of laws and uh, acting against the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in these ways, then uh, countries have not just a right, but a duty to stop it, right? Like, in, in uh, and then it's less of a question, it's less of a tactical question and more of a, of a, uh, well, a question of will. And then we can judge ourselves that way. But I think there would be the will to intervene in Syria if it, the vote were not hampered by Russia. I think it would happen overnight. I think if Russia and China were to be like, yeah, all right, whatever, like it would be a really quick intervention. It would take a, it would be a weekend. So it's an artificially generated situation that's led to untold human misery uh, for the benefit of one country. And that's fucked up. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's a fair analysis. I think uh, one of the things that's not really clear is why Russia is doing this other than to make Russia great again, <laughs> right? I don't know what the... I don't know what the advantage is to them. It should this war start really costing them. So far, it's been sort of a moral victory. They fought terrorism. They yeah. stood up to the West. But should you really... I mean, at some point, they actually lost something like 200 people, right, in a single raid. So should there actually be fighting in some way or another if Donald Trump allows for it, which I don't think he will. No. I think, uh, I think that's... Those are consequences that may actually echo all the way back to Moscow. Yeah, and also, I mean, you know, it's it's Iran's war too, right? So they're yeah. attempting to get this corridor all the way to Lebanon. Yeah, uh, and just and that's really dangerous because Saudi Arabia is never going to let that happen. Never. So what is that? That's an impasse. It's just going to be conflict, right? Right. Uh, you know, the the elegant solution is to give this area to the Kurds, right? That's like yeah, they become the buffer. Yeah, and that's but that but Turkey's never going to let that happen. Right. So. We we, have, we 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 can put power or we can exert influence on Turkey and Saudi Arabia, uh, and we're just not doing that. We could if we wanted to. Uh, I'm curious. I I don't know how much power we have on Turkey right now, but yeah, they're a NATO country. You know, we could you know we could mm. put pressure on NATO. They've to, reasonably antagonistic towards them. They have, but you know that's a that's a you know getting out you know not being able to buy NATO weapons anymore definitely mm. puts them at odds against Good their Russia. regional enemies. Uh, they could go to Russia, but you know uh, the Russian catalog of available like weapons is definitely a step down from what they could buy from uh, from NATO countries. Yeah, the and you know that's something. And it's also Turkey does like to think of itself as European in some yeah. way, uh, offering them a sped up path to uh, an accelerate putting them back or making that offer to EU citizenship mm. is something else. I don't think they want that right now, but yeah. that's definitely something we could be proposing as opposed to being like to blanket off the table like fuck you for your crimes like yeah uh, turkey will now live forever in infamy right like, yeah who would you rather be dealing with turkey or russia you know? right 
Uh, I don't know. I'm, I, I, or Iran or Turkey, right? Like, yeah. That's not. That's a no-brainer, right? I mean, maybe in Turkey or Russia, this. Yeah. Possibly, maybe we'd rather be dealing with Russia, but it's, maybe. But uh, Iran or Turkey? I mean, come on, like no, no question, right? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, and the humanitarian crisis of the Kurds is something that will also become an issue if Turkey has its way. Right. Um, anyway, it's it's a mess. That's. Yes, you, you asked my opinion. Uh, what do you What do you think? Um, I think that I th- I think you're largely right that the biggest problem in the in the smaller region, being Syria, is the fact that it, uh, the regime has support from both Iran and Russia. If they were one or the other, it would be easy to isolate them. I think. Yeah. Um, I think the problem is that your only chess piece is effectively checked uh, by tur- Turkey. That I mean, the chess piece being the Kurds. Yeah. Uh, it's a real shame. I think you were going to have to want a serious interventionist plan in order to do anything effective in Syria. That means committing troops or possibly at, at the very least ground support to or air support to the Kurds. Yeah. And uh, establishing things like no-fly zones, which Turkey would never let you do. So I, I think it's a it doesn't seem. I have no idea what the good solution is, and my thinking is that you're just, the country's just bleeding dry, and it's a shame that we can't do something. But I don't have the idea what that doing something is. Uh, all right. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if uh, we've managed to solve anything. Do you want to <laughs> talk a little bit about uh, how the investigation is going, um, or do you have any thoughts on that? Since we last did a show, I guess Michael Cohen Michael office Co- was raided. But Michael Cohen's office was raided. Apparently, Sean Hannity is now is also a client of his, yeah. uh, showing us a lackadaisical attitude towards uh, journalistic ethics. Uh, in terms of Sean Hannity was nightly defending Michael Cohen, yeah. his lawyer. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, so I will say that I wanted to point people into the, to the direction of Andrew McCarthy. Andrew McCarthy is a conservative guy. He actually was a he worked for the uh, he was a prosecutor in the in New York, um, but and he's been a, a skeptic about the Russia probe. He has continues. He has written several articles, many many articles critical of both Bob Mueller's investigation and in general this idea that Russia and Trump colluded towards anything. But he has finally come around to say that, hey, there may be something here with Michael Cohen. To be fair, it's because his old, you know, stomping grounds is finally in, in charge of part of the investigation. So <laughs> the, the the attorney of New York is now in charge of at least some part of the Michael Cohen investigation. That's who Andrew McCarthy worked for. So maybe it just may be a territorial thing or a bureaucratic yeah. thing. But it's worth reading. I mean, Andrew McCarthy, again, is sort of the devil's advocate I think I have. I think it's always helpful to kind of read that. Yeah, um, t- it takes a lot to get indicted as a dirtbag in the Southern District of New York, right? Yeah, and, and <laughs> to break attorney-client uh, privilege, yeah. right? So that's something that's uh, people keep bringing up. In order to have these kind of um, indictments go forth, there has to be a very high-level sign-off. Um, probably either the AG or the deputy AG had to sign off on this, and breaking or violating client attorney privilege is um, is something that's just not done very lightly. So clearly there were serious allegations here. We just don't know what they were. Yeah, and I, I guess we're going to find out. That's interesting. Right. I want to go on record and say I'm still 
skeptical that we're going to find direct Russia Trump collusion, right? I just don't know. Beyond what has already occurred out in the open. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's what's, where there's a deal effectively to say that hey, we'll we'll give you this election if you give us blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, I I'm a little skeptical that there was that kind of arrangement. I think they were both people who just found each other. Yeah. What I do think is interesting is that the specter of direct collusion has allowed uh, the political body to form uh, some sort of a response to Donald Trump's corruption, right? So we can't really talk about things like, hey, why are you charging? Why are you selling out the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C.? Or why yeah. do you charge for Mar-a-Lago? Mar so you have to go through, you have to argue this thing that may not be true, which is Trump-Russia collusion, this and and is that chasing that 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 bogeyman that allows you to investigate a lot of things? So like yeah, I I I think it's an interesting argument. I often think that in the political body we argue in extremes. So I had to believe something really ridiculous in order to bring the other side a couple of inches, right? I had to mark I had to argue something that's a mile mile away from where we are in order to get the center to move a little. Yeah, I mean I contend that. Uh, it's not just Russia that's blackmailing Trump, but everybody. I think everybody's blackmailing Trump about a million different things at all times. Everybody's got their own little piece of blackmail, and he just sits in his uh, White House bedroom and just screams. <laughs> and then he comes out and says the thing that he has to say because of the piece of blackmail that was they just cancel each other out and he just goes around in circles like Schumer's got something on him <laughs> the you know the the never Trumpers have something the Hollywood's got something I I, I I don't know I think you're giving motivation well I mean it's possible his motivation could be corruption I just think that he's a shallow man yeah because yeah. he takes everything personally right, right he's everybody's puppet and it's so exhausting I think he can be manipulated <laughs> that way I think for example um if the Chinese had been a little bit smarter, maybe they would have been able to play out this whole trade war a little better. But, you know, I, I had this conversation. I think this brings it around. Um, so if you had to, before Trump came to president, became president, what do you think his goals were? And how has he succeeded? Yeah, I mean, I think he's got the same goal as, like, Tutankhamen, you know, which is just to <laughs> carve his name on as much shit as possible and like, be buried with all this shit. I have said the name Trump, you know, more than I have uh, said the name of loved ones in the past, you know, <laughs> two, three years, right? We, we chant his name in unison, this drumbeat, and it sustains him. So let me, <laughs> let me propose something, because I, I think that's... Uh, that's less thorough than I want. <laughs> okay. So I think I think I think the the Trump agenda is fourfold. Okay. I could be missing one or two, but yeah. One, it's anti-immigration. Sure. Two, it is uh, anti-trade. So, and, I mean, they won't claim to be that. They're not. They're of yeah. course pro free trade, but it is effectively uh, it is effectively uh, a protectionist yeah. policy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, three, <laughs> anti-interventionism. He promised to continue to make our military strong again, fight terrorists, but yeah, 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 but, we, but pull them out. Yeah. Uh, and then four, corruption. I think that the the unspoken part of the Trump agenda is 
getting what he can yeah. out, of, out of this, this you know uh, if he doesn't get a news station it's being able to have nice hotel deals in India it's not it's you know you can raise the rates on various um, uh, properties that you have and and peddling influence so uh, but I think he doesn't just like corruption for himself I think he likes it for everybody he just like respects and like likes corruption yeah I think there's a direct so yeah of the so of these four points corruption he's definitely winning I don't see any sign to that yeah. interventionism I think that's that's basically 50-50 split yeah. because he hasn't really pulled out of Afghanistan and he's hasn't been able to do anything that way yeah, we haven't gone into Venezuela yeah. or North Korea. Yeah, uh, he has only started to scratch the surface with the trade war with China. There's just a lot of rhetoric; nothing has actually happened. Yeah, and then and finally on immigration, he has certainly colored the atmosphere. He's right? moved the needle for sure. Yeah, in, in terms of debate, and I think on the margins, certainly, I think ICE has become paramilitary force. I think they're not very. Um, well, they're not probably not very effective, but effect, but they have become something of a specter haunting illegal immigration. Yeah. Um, so he's colored it on the margins, but hasn't made any huge inroads, as opposed to what he thought he was going to do. So I would say three out of the four, he's a failure. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Unbridled <laughs> success in terms of corruption, but yeah. everything else is, is a mitigated... Um, mitigated success. I would say that at best it's a mitigated success. Yeah. I mean, it's not It's not quite a failure, but it's certainly a success. And he's moving out of a, a phase of his presidency where he has carte blanche in terms of legislative abilities. So, so. it's a diehard style heist, right? <laughs> <laughs> we just think it's about ideology, but really it's about like drilling into that bank vault. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. So I, I was thinking about that, but I, I will come to the four pillars of what actually is success. I, I um I think it's an interesting rubric to judge uh, Trump by. I think you're missing one. Oh, okay. Which is pissing off liberals. Like um, that the is the cultural war, right? Yeah, that is a huge part That's of fair. like you know like, rhetorical cultural war. Then he's definitely winning that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pissing off liberals, making elites mad, and yeah. and reducing their level of influence and power. Right. Elites as defined by smart people, not necessarily rich people. Right. Uh, and. Uh, I think I think he, he's doing great at that. I think it's, okay. I think that was, I think that might have been the number one reason he was elected. Yeah, uh, and so I think that is why he retains his approval rating despite being a failure at the other three things. That's uh, okay. That's an interesting point. Okay, uh, anything else you want to talk about in terms of Trump or the investigation? No, no, no. no. Uh, so there are a couple of things uh, just to wind up before we uh, run out completely out of time. So one, you read the Comey book. Yeah, I read the Comey book. You spent all night reading it. It just came out this midnight. So tell us, I, because I think one of your pet peeves is that people have been opining a lot about Comey's book without actually reading it, but you're someone who has actually read it. Yeah, so, so, it's, so it's interesting. A lot of what I've seen people get mad at is there's not a lot of new information, right. that it seems like he's just kind of covering his ass, or like that he's, you know, like... Never. But I'm seeing this as a as a result of people cherry picking passages that they've seen passed around online, and then just like weighing in with like full and and total authority, right? Yeah. Whereas the actual book is trying to do something way bigger than that, way bigger than even delivering information. It's a book that is attempting to uh, elucidate a mindset, which is. Uh, that the role of people like Comey in the deep state is to, you know, be apartisan outside of politics, 
to hold themselves to a higher authority, an internal one, and it doesn't necessarily have to be spiritual. It can be just you know as simple as an understanding of history, right? Which I believe is the one that he has chosen for himself. Uh, in which case, all of his decisions are, you know, uh, a result of this uh, higher kind of order thought process. And he goes through a lot of things that he's done in his life. Uh, and judging himself rather mercilessly according to this criteria that he set out for himself in the beginning. And uh, it's, it's to say you learn nothing new from it uh, is maybe true like about the details of Trump, but I found it to be kind of moving. I thought it was a very good book. Like I learned a lot about uh, this one man and his relationship to power and uh, his own job, which is a very high-profile job, right? Right. Uh, and I found it to be, uh, therefore, kind of a, a really good read. I recommend it to anybody who's looking for something, uh, you know, anything as an antidote to the current milieu of, like, nihilism and uh, yeah, kind of mean-spirited attacks one way or the other. Sure. So you're saying that you found it moving. From what I understand, he's also uh, both critical and also uh, somewhat melodramatic and histrionic, right? Like about his about his role to play and, and things like that. But maybe that's wrong. So I, I wouldn't say he's melodramatic. I would say he's emotional, uh, yeah. which is something that I actually kind of like in a person who, sure. and I think it's a, a necessary component of somebody who's a good investigator. He's, uh, he's emotionally perceptive, right? right? Which is not something we're used to from A, men, mm-hmm. and B, uh, cops, right? right? And it's a little bit unnerving for that reason. He's talking about you know, how he it analyzes people and thinks about people, and he's a good writer. I think it yeah. shows in his writing, right? And I think it's something that helped him to rise to where he is and, has, and made him somebody who, you know, was able to see how something like our torture laws, our, our classified torture laws, would someday be perceived by everybody else. You know, right. uh, the short-sightedness of that. And I think he does tend to think of things in, as, as in the long arc of history, not just like short-sighted situation. Uh, and I think for that reason, it was. I don't really agree with him, and I read it with a certain amount of rage. Right. Right. He definitely swung that election. Right. Right. Uh, but it, I, I did, it did come away with feeling maybe not better about our current time, but better about humanity, and that is not trivial, right? Right. Like, uh, in a way that the that Fire and Fury didn't. That that was a nihilist book, right? Right. Like you came away from that. Yeah, feeling, it's a gossip. You feeling bad about government, which is uh, not really a liberal position. Right. I came away feeling good about what government can do and what an institution can be. And for that reason, it was a very liberal book, to, though James Comey would not define himself as that kind of person. Uh, interesting, interesting. So you recommend this book? Yeah, it's also, it's also a quick read, and okay. he's, he's, got a, he's got a year for a, a fun anecdote. All right. uh, I recommend the chapter on how he took down Martha Stewart and why. Okay. Uh, <laughs> All right, fair enough. Also, fair his enough. life is very sad and strange. I, I, I knew nothing, any, I knew no details about it. Yeah, I don't, know, I don't think I know anything about it. Yeah, so I think, I, think, I think he's a different kind of person than people think he is. And I always admire somebody who can write. And uh, Both Michael Wolff and James Comey can write. They can definitely write. Well, uh, Michael Wolff can write. Yeah, and I think, I think that is 
something that people are jealous of and so a lot of the preliminary reviews from media types who definitively can't write and who are uh, have their jobs because they mistrust good writing right right uh, you know they, they want data and facts and like uh, they, they don't have an ear for a beautiful sentence they have uh, they, and they have no patience for it. And right. We don't really in our current time. There's no time for sweetness and light, or like malice and poison. Right. Even as Michael Wolff, uh, kind of a counterpoint to that. But, yeah. Uh, Interesting. All right. I, I will disagree with you on the data and facts. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so. But I, 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 I see your point. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, narratives and stories are really important. Yeah. If you're looking for something that's simultaneously a, a good story and politically relevant i think is i think his book does both those things yeah interesting uh, um okay all right that's a, that's an interesting recommendation so i wanted to talk a little bit about sort of the flip side to that uh there are a couple of controversies on the right side of the media that because i follow a lot of uh right-leaning people on Twitter, I just was very aware of. Yeah. And I'm not sure anyone cares about it. I, don't, I, don't, I fundamentally don't think sh <laughs> people should care. Um, so the biggest controversy is that at some point for a brief moment, The Atlantic hired a guy named Kevin Williamson to write for them. Yeah. Uh, there was an outcry because of things he had said about abortion or what, how we should treat uh, people who had abortions um, that I think either led to a staff uprising. I think killing them is what he wanted to do. So. Right. So I, yeah, I'll go into that. So um, he, so what he said uh, is very different from what he was alleged to have said. So what he clearly said was he thinks that abortion is, should be considered murder. Yeah. And so uh, and contingent upon repealing the law that anyone who had an abortion after whatever the the right to abortion was uh, rescinded uh we should be hanged yeah um so that is uh as a tough line on abortion <laughs> sure tough N tough line so no, nobody has that line by the way that is not the position of any ecclesiastical or civic body that is right the line of kevin williamson right so. exactly so he's a, a tough tough line <laughs> yeah. so uh, uh the atlantic in itself rescinded their offer for it to have him right sure so they lost um uh, if you read Kevin Williamson, uh, he is a, a very interesting guy. Yeah. Uh, certainly, and he has certain, and he's he's a good writer. He's a solid writer. Uh, I don't consider him like a great writer, and because as a political male, you like I don't consider him a great writer. I just, but he's a good writer, um, and he has an eye for for moments. Um, but uh, what the right wing took away from this, and is that oh, there's no space to have someone who is anti-abortion in something like the atlantic and the atlantic goes back and forth it's actually not a completely leftist it's run by david Fromm, who is a never trump or a former conservative yeah so i think the 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 leadership tends to go between alternate between right and left yeah but they tend to be somewhat eclectic in their uh who they have on staff they may lean left at this point yeah uh, i think that's nonsense and for me this was something that I think when we started this podcast, I was always trying to bring voices from the right that I thought were respectable and honorable and worth listening to. And to me, this was watching people that I really, really liked lose their collective minds. Yeah. And so every writer that I would swear by just sort of piled in. 
and what I think right-wing media didn't... Uh, I think at some point, this is, this is a staking of position that they think... So, unless they are willing to condemn Kevin Williamson, which most of them weren't, that means that effectively this is something that they've accepted as this is mainstream pro-life sentiment, right? That sure. that that hanging <laughs> hanging people who have abortionists when and if we rescind the laws, uh, sorry, who either performed abortions or who had abortions should be hanged, yeah. right? Like, or shot, or whatever, yeah, capital yeah. punishment, or some extreme crime. It's equivalent to guillotining bankers. Right. So, so. <laughs> so I think, on one hand, I think the the right wing has allowed Kevin Williamson to stake out what apparently is the position they need, they feel, um, they need to defend. What is it? Which is talking? nonsense, right. Yeah. Which is nonsense. Um, I think there are plenty of people who are... Uh, who are pro-life, who can make a much better argument, who wouldn't make that kind of ridiculous argument. Um, my point is that I, even though we tend to be free speech and we want the debate, I think it's perfectly okay for the left to draw that line and say, Kevin, Kevin Williamson, I, I don't want to read Kevin Williamson, I don't support a paper that would have him on staff because he's an extremist. And yeah. I think that's that's something that I found myself kind of coming to that conclusion, right? Yeah. He's an edge case. I would even say, and so I, I began to realize that there are people I really like on the right, but it's okay for the left to say, look, that that is something, that that's where I draw the line. It's not just that he's anti-abortion. He's so virulently anti-abortion for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, that I just can't. I don't want to be part of it. Whether he's part of, he's allowed to. He's allowed to partake in other discussions or be part of uh, this magazine. I don't know, but it's okay to draw that line. I would say there are other interesting uh, edge cases that get things like college protests. Like Ben Shapiro gets protested a lot, largely because he picks soft targets. But he's also an edge case. He says some things that are vile, and I I find myself siding for once in, with the left saying like hey these are these are cases where we're not okay with this rhetoric this level of rhetoric and we're okay with saying that I don't want that as part of my dialogue yeah also where you go from there what is the what you, what is your second article about this right i mean no. like you can only either walk that back or like continue to defend it in which case there's no talking to you right, right. and I think the, the allure of Kevin Williamson is that he's not that's not what he talks about this is one thing that he said yeah. uh, he could write about a lot of things he grew up very poor he's all, has very interesting things to say about his life growing up he also thinks a lot about um, literature he's actually not a bad writer on literature and, mm -hmm. and so he has a, just eclectic taste so he could have been very good but I think what he said, I think, is it's okay for the staff to be uh, somewhat up in arms. I would argue that I think other people on the right tend to get um, tend to get shunned just because they're on the right. So Barry Weiss, I don't love Barry Weiss from the New York Times, but when she says something slightly, not even off color, she'll get uh, condemned by the other writers on the New York Times and by Twitter. And I think that's silly, but it's okay for the left to kind of draw the line somewhere yeah, and I found myself realizing that so the the other thing that came out with it, it came uh, I realized this and I maybe should have uh, should have realized this is that right-wing media uh, which is very different right yeah. uh, it's, it is its own it's its own ecosystem that does really 
uh, feed on grievance, right? Like, yeah. yeah. And so I, I don't, I don't think you get to blame, you know, Breitbart. And I think Breitbart responds to demand. It may have fed demand too, but like the ecosystem is large. It, it's been around for a while, but right-wing media feeds on this kind of aggressive grievance peddling yeah. that pushes a lot of the writers to say extreme things. So that's fine as long as you want to play in that bubble, right? But the minute they try to go more mainstream, this record of saying deplorable things because it helps them. It helps them get noticed. It helps them. They get to attract uh, an extreme audience. The tougher their language, the, they, they, it allows them to um, sort of separate themselves from what they kind of see as mainstream right, which is probably a more well-heeled commentary. Um, it is that ecosystem that bred very combative, very, like, quote-unquote controversial, but largely aggressive people out to say extreme things. And that's that's the ecosystem that Kevin uh, Williamson comes from, and that's okay, but if you try to go mainstream, understand that, that you, we live in an age where that record is now perfect. It's easily yeah. searchable. And so... It's just not going to work as well. And I, I feel like that is something that most people on the right did not acknowledge. And so I often think of the right and the left as mirroring each other. But in this case, no, that's not true. Le maybe the left is a, has a wider um, wider gamut in terms of of where it covers in terms of the ideological spectrum. And there could be incendiary leftist writers. I don't come across them very often. And so I, I, find, my, I find myself just really kind of being sad that people that I, I really respect are in some ways, if they're not directly participating in it, they can, they feel the need to come to uh, defend that. And I'm a huge fan of free speech, but I found that very sort of uh, disconcerting and... Uh, no one's, no one's persecuting him disappointing. for his, what he says or even his beliefs. They're just not paying him for it at the Atlantic. It's a whole, it's within, right. totally within their rights to do that, you know. Uh, if you're being hired as a writer there, your 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 job is to, you know, your editor could change everything you say. <laughs> right. And, you know, it's, right. it's their right, you know. If they, if they don't think you're even acting in good faith, which that kind of rhetoric leads me to believe he's just kind of wants to get fired. He yeah. wants to, you know, invite grievance, right? Uh, yeah. Then good day to you, sir. You know? Right. Yeah, so my... my point is I think that the media scape is brutal. Yeah. Right wing the media is even more brutal than the regular sort of landscape. Um, and it breeds these gladiators, these rhetorical gladiators who are rough and they will not fit in well with more well-heeled institutions that don't revolve around social media. You know, so the New York Times or the Atlantic are bad fits for these kind of where the readers, battlers, right. these bare knuckled rhetorical battle, battlers, oh, and where the readers go in, kind of exhausted by the the frankly kind of boring gladiator gladiatorial style of right. like TV and right. the bombast of like the blogosphere, and they're looking for nuance yeah. and and good longer faith. articles, yeah yeah, 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 good faith discussions of concepts. Yeah, uh, and I'm not saying the New York Times is is perfect, or even the Atlantic, I, which I actually really like the Atlantic, and I I'm not a fan of the New York Times, but. Uh, I found myself actually defending institutions that I didn't really love. Yeah. yeah, there's a there's a kind of naive, like I don't know, simplistic idea that the readership is like is is can't handle this crazy, you know, 
shit, you know. Yeah. And they're like they're too like weak and soft for it, snowflakes or whatever. Yeah. But it's it's kind of to the contrary. It's that they're bored by it. They've heard it before, and they're looking for a new someone who can articulate new things to them in a way that uh, sh- shocks and reveals similarities and and you know maybe right. presents the conservative line in a way that isn't uh, something that is a, a caricature of itself. Right, and I think that it's um. And I think that there's something okay with saying, like, I don't want to listen to what Kevin Williamson has to say about abortion. That's nuts. But I think at the same time, the left should say, like, okay, well, there are people that I think are worth listening to. And I will put out, I actually think, Saurabh Amari. Saurabh Amari is uh, certainly a very pro-life guy, but he writes beautifully about it and in a way that I think is worth reading. I, in general, don't think men should participate in this debate (laughs) in general. But I, uh, so Saurabh Amari, I think, should get the Kevin Williams spot because he's a lovely writer. Uh, he's my favorite reactionary. Um, well, because I don't agree with anything he says, but I think I yeah, listen yeah. want to listen to what he says. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. I felt the same way about Christopher Hitchens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just like read everything he wrote. It was like, man, all of it was you bad. Suck, but I love okay, yeah. Is there a solution to this? Is there? Uh, is there? Is there an Atlantic on the right? I mean, was it was it the National Review and commentary? Commentary. Commentary is yeah. very good. And I dis- I disagree with uh, a lot of what they say. What, but do they have any left wing voices there? They don't, and and they they defended not having a left wing voice. Yeah. And I I don't agree with that. But they also say that, and they'll but they publish. I think they'll publish left wing writers, but as long as they're writing about culture, because yeah. it's a it's culture and politics. Um, but commentary is is fun. It's pretty good, and there is. Uh, I think Noah Rothman is actually. Extremely articulate conservative. He's not even reactionary. He's he's someone that I, I've found I really like listening to, um, and and reading. He's he's quite good. I don't agree with him a lot of times, but yeah, I think there are plenty of conservative voices that I like. I just I, I think that it's just sometimes it's just, it's a brutal way to take in media um, in a place like Twitter or um, our current media landscape, and so I. I have begun to understand why people retreat to bubbles because <laughs> it's it's brutal. It's it's not that uh, there's there's internal policing right of yeah. the, the various arguments, and that's that's a shame. But uh, so I, I turned off Twitter for a little while. It was yeah, it was pretty bad. It wasn't uh, personally bad. It was just not. It's just not good. Uh, anything else? Ah uh, no no. I hope you get to feeling that. Yeah no, thank you. I appreciate that, and uh, yeah, I think it'll. Uh, I think things will work itself out. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, well, anyway, thanks everyone for joining us. This has been episode 42 of Room of Requirement. Um, and thanks to Kevin Carter for producing our intro and outro.